0: Welcome to Dark Archive, where we explore terrifying and chilling stories from the past. Tonight, we will explore the horrifying murder of young actress Rebecca Schaefer.
1: Each year, thousands of celebrity hopefuls pack up their cars, leaving their beloved hometowns behind and head to Los Angeles. L.A. is the world capital of television and motion pictures. For those wanting to star on the small screen or silver screen, L.A. is where those dreams can be realized. It was July eighteenth, 1989. NBC had aired the pilot episode for Seinfeld two weeks prior. Major League Baseball's All-Star Game played one week earlier in Anaheim, California. And less than 40 miles away in West Hollywood, a budding young actress, Rebecca Schaefer, sat in her apartment awaiting a script delivery that could change the arc of her career. The 21-year-old from Eugene, Oregon, had already moved across the world and back again, chasing the same fame that tens of thousands had done, coming to Tinseltown. The knock on the door finally came. Rebecca excitedly answered, thinking this was the script for Godfather Part Three that she had been waiting for. She was meeting later that day with director Francis Ford Coppola to discuss the role of Mary Corleone, Michael's daughter. She answered the door to a young man she had seen just a short time ago. Annoyed at his persistent presence, she asked him to leave. Taking umbrage to her request, the man pulled a gun from behind his back said, I forgot to give you something. He fired a single bullet into her chest. Rebecca collapsed on the doorstep and died 30 minutes later. Far away from the alluring Hollywood lights, Rebecca Schaefer was born November 6, 1967, in Eugene, Oregon, to child psychologist Dr. Benson Schaefer and Portland Community College instructor Dana Schaefer. According to Rebecca's friends, the young girl dreamed of becoming a rabbi. She wanted to share the teachings and values of the Torah with her Jewish community. But as Rebecca grew older, her fondness and aptitudes shifted toward show business. Taking advice from her teenage friends, Rebecca began modeling during her junior year of high school. But there was only so much exposure an aspiring model could get in Oregon. So in 1984, Rebecca's parents allowed her to move to New York alone to pursue and develop her modeling career. Rebecca attended the professional children's school in New York, and after appearing in several print ads and local television commercials, she was spotted by casting directors for Guiding Light, who cast her in a small role. Later that year, Rebecca got the break she had been waiting for with the role of Annie Barnes on One Life to Live. It was around this time that the realities of show business would put an end to her modeling ambitions. Runway models were at least five foot nine and at five foot seven, Rebecca did not meet that standard. But her agent and Hollywood casting producers saw in her raw talent at acting, and she was on track to becoming a star. After appearing in small roles in Woody Allen's Radio Days and Steven Spielberg's series Amazing Stories, Rebecca received a phone call from her agent that producers of the upcoming sitcom, My Sister Sam, were interested in her playing the younger sister of Pam Dauber from Mork & Mindy. My Sister Sam was a 30-minute CBS comedy which premiered on October 6, 1986, scheduled between Kate and Allie and Newhart. Both hit shows for CBS. Like real estate, a television show's time slot is all about location, location, location. The story of My Sister Sam was a San Francisco photographer, Samantha Russell, takes in her teenage sister, Patty, following the death of their parents. It was during My Sister Sam that Rebecca began receiving lots of fan mail, something new for the young star. She knew she had made it, and that these were the spoils of being a young star. Against advice from those on the show, Rebecca responded to the letters by answering their questions and personalizing her responses. She felt obligated to take as much time in her responses to fans as they had taken in writing to her. One letter came from Robert John Bardo of Tucson. Bardo had seen Rebecca co-hosting the Thanksgiving Day Parade for CBS and wrote to her at the studio. As Rebecca had with so many other letters from fans, she responded with a note saying that his letter was very sweet, and she thanked him for taking the time to write. In Rebecca's mind, taking the time to write a personal and meaningful letter back to a fan was the appropriate response. To Bardo, her letter transformed his unrequited and distant affection to that of mutual fondness. Bardo's fandom turned into worship, which later became a dangerous obsession. After good success on Monday nights, CBS tinkered with its schedule and moved My Sister Sam to Saturday nights, opposite NBC's ratings buzzsaw, Facts of Life. Anytime a television show moves time slots, and especially days of the week, fans can have a challenging time finding it. This, accompanied by the popularity of Facts of Life, the audience and ratings cratered to one of the lowest on network television, CBS canceled My Sister Sam in 1988 in the middle of the second season, leaving 12 episodes unseen until the USA Network picked up syndication rights and eventually aired all 44 episodes, including those never aired by the original network. While it was a setback, starring in a canceled television show is not the end of a career. Plenty of A-listers were either fired from television, such as Robert Downey Jr. from Ally McBeal, or their show was canceled by the network, such as John Lithgow with Third Rock from The Sun. Success remained a prospect for Rebecca. She was cast in the television movie Out of Time about a cop 100 years in the future who travels back to Los Angeles to team up with his great-grandfather to track down and capture a criminal mastermind. Following that, Rebecca played Zandra Lipkin in the satirical film *Scenes from the Class Struggle* in Beverly Hills. A love scene between Rebecca and a man in this film would ultimately send her stalker over the edge. In 1989, Rebecca traveled to Egypt to film *Voyage of Terror: The Achille Loro Affair*. She returned in late spring to her Tudor-style apartment in the Fairfax District of West Hollywood. The world was her oyster. On July 18th, 1989, Rebecca was waiting for the delivery of the script for The Godfather Part 3, for her to study the role of Mary Corleone before a meeting with director Francis Ford Coppola later that day. At around 10 a.m., the buzzer to her apartment rang, and Rebecca answered the door believing it was her script. She opened the door to Robert John Bardo, the man from earlier letters and attempted visits to her filming set. Bardo had been writing letters to Rebecca for the better part of two years, but their content did not make police suspicious. Detective Dan Andrews, an investigator at the time, said his letters to Rebecca were typical fan letters, which included descriptions of himself, questions about acting, and personal questions about her. Bardo contacted her agents with the same types of questions. Rebecca thought the notes and gifts were sweet, and some of them were even sent to the studio where my sister Sam had filmed. Shortly before making his way to West Hollywood to see Rebecca, Bardo mailed a letter to his sister in Tennessee. I have an obsession with the unattainable, and I have to eliminate what I cannot attain. Bardo had watched all of Rebecca's films and television appearances originally falling for her while playing Patty Russell on My Sister Sam, but it was her role as Zandra Lipkin in scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, the filming of a love scene, that sent Bardo into a rage. In his mind, Bardo thought, How dare she? Rebecca is mine, and she has no business with this other man. I cannot let this go. In Bardo's mind, Rebecca's dalliance with her on-screen lover was over the line and could not go unpunished. In Tucson, Bardo visited a gun store to purchase a pistol. While talking with the store owner about his needs and the type of gun he was looking for, Bardo made the mistake of making known his past mental health problems. To the credit of the store owner, he refused to sell him a gun. Bardo returned home and convinced his brother Edward to purchase the gun for him. Edward, not thinking anything about purchasing a mentally unstable nineteen year old a gun, bought the pistol for his brother.
2: On his own. Bardo obtained 10 hollow-point bullets. A hollow-point bullet is a type of bullet that expands upon impact, causing a more lethal hit without further penetrating into the body. The bullet hits the target's soft tissue, and because the pressure is more than the bullet can handle, while maintaining structural integrity, the soft metal peels back and out, causing the bullet to mushroom. This action slows the round down considerably, stopping it from moving further into the body, or exiting through the other side. For all Bardo's erratic and volatile behavior, his method of finding and hunting Rebecca was well thought out. How did Bardo locate Rebecca's home? For that, we have to go back to 1982, when actress Teresa Saldana was also attacked by a crazed fan. Saldana began her acting career in the 1978 film I Want to Hold Your Hand, a fictional comedy about the power of Beatlemania. Two years later, Saldana was cast in Raging Bull as Lenore Lamata, the wife of Joey, Joe Pesci's character. Just as Bardana saw Rebecca in My Sister Sam and Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, Teresa's attacker, a Scot named Arthur Richard Jackson, had seen her in Raging Bull and became consumed with the idea of her. Jackson hired a private investigator to obtain Teresa's address, and a few days later was outside of her West Hollywood residence, Waiting. When Teresa walked outside, he walked straight up to her, and using his politeness as subterfuge, approached her. "'Excuse me, are you Teresa Saldano?' Teresa, thinking nothing of the encounter, as similar encounters had happened countless times, replied, "'Yes.' This was all Jackson needed. He stabbed and slashed her with a hunting knife over and over again, so much so that his knife bent backwards.' Hearing Saldana's screams, Jeff Fenn, a delivery man who was a couple of houses away, rushed over and wrestled the weapon away from Jackson. When Teresa arrived at Cedar sinai Medical Center, most of the blood had drained from her body, stopping her heart. But because of talented surgeons who performed heart-lung surgery, 26 pints of blood, and Jeff Fenn's heroism, Saldana survived the attack and would live to film more movies and television shows. Bardo learned from Teresa's story and knew the easiest way to find Rebecca's home was to hire a private investigator. It worked so easy for Arthur Richard Jackson. Why not again? The ease of which Bardo obtained her address is one of the more troubling facts about this case. Bardo's PI went to the DMV and requested Rebecca's information, and it was given to him, just as any other fleeting transaction. Imagine being able to go to the DMV and for $10 receiving the personal address of any movie star or athlete that you wanted to see. The idea seems ludicrous today. Now with Rebecca's address, a pistol, and ten hollow-point bullets, Bardo hops on a Greyhound for a 500-mile trip that would take him to her front door. The morning of July eighteenth, nineteen 1989, inside of her apartment, Rebecca awaited a script for Godfather Part Three to read over and prepare for her meeting later that day with Francis Ford Coppola. Bardo arrived in West Hollywood and walked through the neighborhood with the photo Rebecca had signed and asked passers-by if they'd seen her that day. Having her address, he walked to her apartment and rang the buzzer. In an inopportune ironic happening, the intercom to her building, which acts as a barrier between residents and solicitors, was broken, so Rebecca had to walk down the stairs to answer the door. Surprised at seeing Rebecca with such little effort, Bardo introduced himself and shook her hand. They talked for a few seconds. Bardo told her what a big fan he was, and he was so thrilled to finally meet her. After a brief back and forth, Rebecca excused herself and shut the door. Bardo walked away unsatisfied. He walked around the corner to a diner, ordered some food, and became more and more angry since he had not gotten what he wanted. His rage had not been appeased. Bardo left the diner and returned to Rebecca's apartment, ringing the buzzer, and again, because the intercom was not working, she walked down the stairs to open the door. Not seeing the expected courier with her script, but Bardo once again. But this encounter was different this time. Annoyed, Rebecca said to him that he was wasting her time and asked him to leave. It was then that Bardo pulled the gun from behind his back and fired into Rebecca's chest. The bullet pierced her heart, Bardo fled, the front step, leaving Rebecca crying and bleeding on the ground. A neighbor heard the gunshot, called police, and came to Rebecca's aid. But unlike Teresa Saldana, Rebecca would not survive her injuries. The Los Angeles Police Department began a citywide manhunt for Bardo. All they knew at the time to look for was a man wearing a yellow shirt. Police interviewed neighbors to find Bardo, but he'd already left the city and was on a Greyhound back to Tucson. The following day, Bardo was arrested after Tucson police were called to an intersection where Bardo was walking in traffic, dodging cars, screaming, I killed Rebecca Schaefer. Bardo was apprehended and extradited to Los Angeles where he stood trial for first-degree murder. At a non-jury trial prosecuted by Marcia Clark, who you may remember from the O.J. Simpson double murder case, Bardo was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Bardo's sentence would offer some measure of closure for Rebecca's family. Four other women were murdered in Orange County by men who they had restraining orders against for harassment in the same year as Rebecca's murder. Rebecca Schaefer was laid to rest on July 23, 1989, at the Ahavi Shalom Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. Rebecca's death changed laws, including the prohibition of the Department of Motor Vehicles releasing a resident's home address. It also helped to create the LAPD's Threat Management Unit, the first police team in the United States to focus on stalking cases. All positive changes that certainly have prevented similar deaths. Regrettably, it all came at a horrific price. In 2007, Bardo was an inmate at Mule Creek State Prison in Amador County, California, when another inmate stabbed him and inflicted 11 wounds. Now, 52 years old, He is serving a sentence of life without parole at California's Avenal State Prison.
0: You mentioned that there were four women in Orange County killed that had restraining orders. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. In 1989. And in Orange County in 1990, five more women were killed who had restraining orders against their boyfriends or spouses. This led to the first anti-stalking law in the United States. Rebecca Schaefer's murder did, actually. And now we have them in all 50 states. Took long
2: enough. So it was not for naught. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to believe that that wasn't a thing prior to that. I mean, we're only talking about 1989 here, right? That's that's wild. Um but
0: well, they believe that restraining orders were
2: good. I guess, I guess so. Let's let's uh let us introduce our panel who we're, who we're talking to after after this story. Um, the first voice that you heard uh, that is Chuck Walters. Um, uh, the next the next voice who read the first part of our story, Nina Enstead, from the Already Gone podcast, and also Tim Scott is joining us uh, from History Dweebs and the Dead Ball podcast. So yeah, Chuck, as you were saying, I I, I agree. It's it's wild to think that um, you know that still happened even a year after that. But to think that in 1989 there were no decent anti-stalking laws uh, is really kind of a mind job.
0: Well, restraining order and stalking were different. It made it a felony.
3: Yeah. You know the. I think the interesting part about stalking is. There's this delusional aspect of it. Obviously, he thought that he was destined to be um the man in her life. And it's, there's just also this um, obsessive-compulsive behavior. I think it goes along with stalking. Do we know, as was he ever diagnosed, or do we know, you know, what... Um, prior I, I'm sure once he went to prison yeah was- prior
2: to any of this um, I I wasn't able to find where he had there there were where he had any you know uh, conclusive diagnosis I am sure yes once incarcerated uh, he was probably seen by a doctor and um, they they probably labeled him with some sort of of mental defect I mean he, he almost he would have to have one in order to commit this at the trial his
0: his lawyer did argue that he had mental problems however they were not going to let them basically the judge said go all in if you want to go with the insanity defense yep. do it but don't tell us about mental and problems.
2: and the the what the interesting part to that is when marsha clark who who was the prosecutor was trying to find a way to really convince the jury. I and mean, even though this wasn't you know, their official defense, she wanted to make sure the jury did not think, well, he should get off because he's mentally incapacitated. The fact that he hid the gun in his back waistband, to her, proved that he was trying to hide it and therefore knew what he was doing was wrong. So that kind of slam-dunked it for her to say hey look you know he 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 set out to do absolutely absolutely it was completely premeditated he had capacity he knew in his mind what was what was happening
3: i i think it's probably easier today than it was 1995 to get information on on celebrities with the internet and and um you know how you got nuts with yeah but uh, i think
0: prior to that drones prior to that you could just walk into the dmv yeah and ask and they would give it to
3: you oh i know but i just you know i'm just uh well but today i wonder if it's it's any more difficult
2: well i mean it's definitely i think easier but it's easier in a different way i mean there there are literally websites um that i that i've gone to just looking for people that i went to school with and it's amazing what for free you can get. I mean, addresses, phone numbers, people in their family. I mean, it's it's not hard to find information about where someone lives. I mean, obviously in '89 we didn't have the internet, so it was a lot different, you know, back then. Um, but I so I think it's easier in some respects, but it also. You shouldn't be able to walk into the DMV and get someone's personal information. I mean, that's that's really out there. And the fact that that could ever happen. Agree. The fact that could ever happen was just asking for trouble. You know, that's why I don't
0: answer my door. I I don't. I just because really, if you're not expecting someone, what good comes of it? It's like the Avon lady or I just don't. I send Logan. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, if it's Saturday morning, early Saturday morning, somebody's trying to sell you something. Cut your grass, whatever. I just say, Logan, go get that, please. Um, but,
3: but I mean, there's a lot of information out there. You know, like property. I mean, you oh yeah, know, it's. I would not think it'd be that difficult to find, especially if someone owns property
2: yeah i mean if, if you own if you own your home now it's very it's easy. very easy to find the address of someone you know uh, you just go to an auditor's website put in that person's name and it pops right up it's not hard um and i think a couple of the things that that really uh there, there was one thing that wasn't included in the story because it wasn't a, a, a big deal but it just goes to the goes to kind of the idea that everything with this that resulted in her being killed Um, was a lot of dominoes that kind of fell not in her favor. She was with her boyfriend the day before, and he was supposed to stay over and had planned to, but he had an early morning meeting, so he didn't. So imagine if he was there, maybe how that might have been a little different. Um, If her super would have fixed the intercom system and not just left it to be broken, she wouldn't have had to come down the stairs and answer the door and be exposed in the way she was um right you know had they not again the dmv had they not just freely given over the information so you know all of these things these unfortunate events just almost conspired against her in order for this this to happen
0: nina i i do have a question and if you're uncomfortable with this oh boy as someone i mean your your podcast already gone is is fairly well known it's a fairly popular podcast And I, at doing podcasts, I've kind of found that just in that kind of smaller arena, if people listen to you enough, they believe they know you. Yeah, they do. And is that something yourself, you know, again, we're all male and, you know, I'm old, so I don't worry about anything (laughs) anymore. Um, But is that something, do you get uh, like a message or something you just feel like? you know what, I I just don't want to answer this. I don't want to be rude, but I just don't want to be any part of, you know, have any engagement with
1: this. I've had uncomfortable interactions with people that I felt were inappropriate. Um, Someone begging me to call them because they wanted to hear my voice on the phone. And it's very uncomfortable, and I was raised to be very polite, Mm -hmm. which makes it difficult to be assertive in saying, no, thank you. But yeah, there's definitely been instances where I've been approached by people where I was not comfortable and had to be direct that that, that wasn't happening and they needed to stop.
0: One of the interesting things about this is, uh, do you know what the guy had in his hand when he walked up to the door?
2: So he had, um, he had, he had uh, some flowers and he had a the picture of her that she had signed and sent back to him with a personal note on the back of it.
0: He also had a copy of Catcher in the Rye.
2: He did. You're right. He he absolutely did. Yes. Same as yes. same as how, how, how just weird is that? You know? That's weird. It's eerie. Yeah, it's, it's very eerie. It's very weird. Um, Go ahead, Timmy. No,
3: go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say not to get too gruesome into this. Uh, however, owning guns, and, you know, I shoot a lot of guns, she was shot in the chest with a three fifty seven. And the 357 round was developed back in like 1935 when you had a lot, when you had the gangsters and, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde's, because the police 38 specials that they carried wouldn't penetrate the metal of a car. So they built the 357 round that she got shot in the chest with to penetrate, to be able to go through the metal of a car and hit the passenger. Jesus. So you can imagine the kind of devastating damage.
3: Do we know if there was any? Um, did he, his brother face any type of liability?
2: For because purchasing? because he bought the gun, um, I, I did. I did not yeah. find anything on that. No, I I looked and I did not see that 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 he did. Um, I don't know if at the time there were what do they call those straw purchases? I believe. Um, I don't know if, I don't think mm-hmm. at the time there were l- really concrete laws against that either.
3: Yeah, it was just, I was, I thought it was interesting that, you know, cause certainly he, you would have to imagine he would be aware that his brother had some mental health issues.
2: Right. And he did, he did take some steps. Um, he, he, he told him. Look, only shoot this when I'm around. You know, I don't want you going off and, and you know, firing it on your own. But to me, that's that that's just doing that does not cover your ass, right? Like you you know that your brother's disturbed. No. And if my brother's disturbed, and I say, hey, don't you know, don't have this when I'm not around. That's you know, really, you're only I think doing that to preserve yourself you know like you're you're trying to make yourself yourself sleep better at night knowing that oh well I told him not to do it unless I was around and he did he went against my wishes and this happened had he had he listened to me this would have been fine um
3: and it sounds like he had this this was uh this behavior we were talking about this before we were we started recording but he had uh he had been a stalker before he uh, before he was a stalker with Rebecca Schaefer. He was a, uh, stalking a uh, a little girl named Samantha Smith. Um, Samantha Smith was a was a ten year old who, in the early eighties, uh, received some um, uh, fame for writing a letter to, I believe it was uh, Andrei um, Yuri Andropov, the Russian uh, leader. And it, as a, she wrote him a letter as a 10-year-old girl to, you know, promote peace. And uh, he responded, invite, invited her to Russia there was, you know, it was on the news, she was on, uh, I believe she appeared on um, Nightline, if you remember the news show Nightline, and um, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Um, she was only 10 or 12 at the time, now she later died in a uh, in a uh, plane crash, but apparently before he had, he was spending time stalking Rebecca Schaefer, he had, uh he had stalked this this uh you know 10 or 12 year old back in the uh back in the mid1980s and that's why I'm wondering if you know it's it, it how could you know how would a why would a uh, someone buy a weapon for someone who they know is not mentally stable and um you know you just th- think you know how all this could have been prevented,
2: right? Had he not,
3: you know, purchased this. Yeah, that right. Just, just, there. just one more
2: thing where you think had had this not happened, you know, may happen. You know, I, I, the only thing that I can kind of chalk it up to is you know, and, and I don't have siblings, but your brother comes to you and asks you to do something, especially if you're close. You know, maybe you're probably going to do it. Um, may, may, maybe in this case, it it shouldn't have been that clear cut. But you know, I think when some come, someone comes up to you that you're close with, you think you know it's going to be fine. They're not going to do anything rash, you know. He just wants to, I don't know, shoot beer bottles out behind the barn or something like that. Um, was was he with, with stalking that first girl? Was what came of that? Was he was he caught? Did I mean how did that end?
3: Well, I know. I think I think he was uh, sending her letters, and I, I I don't know. I mean, she was. She kind of got this... What happened? She got this notoriety when she was 8 or 10 years old. And uh, it was a big PR uh, initiative by the Soviets. And there were some people who thought she was being used by the by the Soviet Union. But anyway, she ended up uh, parlaying this uh, notoriety to a... Um, to a a kids show, she became a, hired to do a kids show with the Disney network, and uh, I think that's where he first saw her. Now, I think it was limited to letters um, and that sort of thing. I I um I don't know if he ever went to where she lived, but uh, again, she was you know she died when she was like thirteen, so she you know she was somewhere between ten and thirteen when he started um uh following her around, but I think the I think before he could take any type of action, she died suddenly in a in, in the a plane crash. crash with her father wow. okay yeah, and i think I think then he turned his attention to Rebecca Schaefer.
1: that's interesting also
0: just a couple bits of trivia uh, and Nina, you I know you excel I at do. trivia. She was meant to play the role of Mary Corleone. And do you know who Francis turned to to fill that role?
1: His daughter?
0: His daughter, Sophia. That's right. She ended up being a pretty good producer. Another bit of trivia is Brad Pitt lived just a few doors away from her. And he actually commented on the fact that it, really shook young actors and actresses. Nobody had ever thought this could happen before. Because I think he only lived about four doors away. From Rebecca Schaefer. What? Nobody knew who Brad Pitt was wow. at the time. Huh. Yeah. But yeah.
3: Well, you know, that was in... Uh, when did that happen? Like, 94? Is uh, that eight, what you said? Uh,
0: 89. 89.
3: 89. Not long after that was the was when... Uh, remember the stalker that uh, stabbed... Monica Sellis.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, in the back uh, while she was playing. Yeah, in,
0: in the back during the tennis yeah, match.
3: In that case, yeah, she, he went on to the tennis court and stabbed her. In that case, he was a stalker of Steffi Graf, who was, you know, he had this, in his mind, he was helping Steffi Graf by, and, and what he, obviously what he tried to do was to kill her competition. Jeez. But, right. But, you know, Hollywood has a long history of that, because I w- I, when you were mentioning that, uh, Chuck, about Brad Pitt, I was thinking about, you know, it wasn't, you know, 15 years or so before that, maybe not that long, uh, and not necessarily stalking, but um, when uh, Sharon Tate, Sharon Tate was murdered. Yeah. Uh, so.
0: Yeah, that would have been in 69, I suppose. Yeah. Creepy,
2: very. But I, but I think, but I think like you alluded to earlier. You know, it, it, people listen or see people on screen, or they listen to them on the radio, and they think, "Hey, I know this person. You know, I have this this relationship with them." And the 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 star has no idea who the hell this person is. Does can't even imagine to think of who they are. You know, um, like you mentioned Brad Pitt. I mean, think about the billions of people that have seen Brad Pitt in a movie throughout his career, right? And he he will never know ninety nine point nine percent of them, but some of those people think that they have a a relationship with them. Um, one I actually read the other day. I, I I'm at forty at forty three. I'm still a big uh, pro wrestling fan, and one of the wrestlers uh, whose name is Seth Rollins was attacked about a month ago like live when they were filming monday night raw a guy jumped the barricade and, and speared him and attacked him um and they're really good with security they've got you know they've got people there to take him you know take him down because you know i mean i'm sure he can fight a little bit but for the most part the dude's an actor right like he's not a real right, yeah it's, it's, it's all fake yeah, he's not a, he's not a super tough guy and especially when someone tackles you out of nowhere. Well, it turns out that this guy, yeah, basically had kind of been stalking him, had written him letters and thought that they were in a relationship and turns out had his address at home. So a lot, you know, for me, that's fine. I'll be rich all day long. I have no desire to be famous. I want no part of that. Just because of crap like that.
0: Well, and it's, it's strange because he, he talked about it and said that he was kind of inspired by. If you're a U2 fan, Exit, the song Exit mm. off Joshua mm-hmm. Tree. It's about, you know, when religious fanaticism goes overboard and, you know, really becomes deadly, which was actually kind of strangely inspired by Norman Mailer, the Executioner song about Gary Gilmore. And when U2 found this out, they didn't play the song anymore. They actually started playing it again in 2017, 2018 when they played the Joshua tree tour cover to cover. But between that time, there is some disturbing
2: anymore. footage so. there. Yeah. There's some disturbing footage from the trial. It, well, actually everything with Bardo is disturbing because the guy is just, he's, he is out there. I mean, when they talk to him, he's just so matter of fact about what he did, you know, and he just kind of lays it out like, Hey, this is what I did. And it's no big deal. Like he was buying milk, but during the trial, they played the U2 song. So I guess they, you know, the judge could hear it and everyone could hear it. And Bardo is sitting in his chair. Mm-hmm. You know, he, lo- he looks like Beavis and butthead. Like he's shaking his head up and down. He's doing air guitar and he's getting into it. And it's like, wow, even in this setting, in this really solemn setting of, of, of his trial, he's just like a 16 year old kid rocking out to a song that he likes. Really unbelievable. That's wild yeah it's a
0: spooky world and my solution to this my solution is to get a door robot
2: a door robot A door robot
0: when somebody rings your doorbell well now you know you have the doorbells i guess everybody has them that you can see like a ring doorbell you know just from your phone yeah and i don't i still even if i know the people i don't answer the door I take social distance seriously,
3: <laughs> but I mean, Chuck. Um, to your point, I mean, to the you know the degree we had any, we've had, you know, listeners with history dreams. You do get people who think they know you, and they think you know that you know we play characters, and they they seem to think that that's really you, and I mean, and that you're. That they have some sort of relationship with you.
2: Have you guys have Have you guys had some of that experience? Well, I think it's more.
0: I mean, I it's it's most unsettling for me when people they do feel like they know you and they feel like they they will reach out to you. With me, it's primarily to ask advice about life things. Why anybody would look at my life and say, <laughs> "Yeah, I'm going to ask this guy some advice," you know. <laughs>
3: It's flattering, but it you you can also you know it's also you know I I met my fiance through podcasting, so I'm not sure if I'm a good example, but I mean it. People do tend to
2: um, think they know you really, you know, the,
0: yeah, yeah. When they and when when they actually mm. don't, you know we. Yeah, podcasting is a very weird, to me, a very weird medium, because they're listening to you. They're hearing you, and they hear you in their ear over and over, and, and a lot of times, you know, you talk about, depending on the format of the podcast, um, you talk about your your, your personal life, and, and people pick up on that, and sometimes you forget. You have said things about your personal life, and they know things about you that you don't know about them. I, I
2: can I can definitely attest to that. I
3: gave my, I gave my phone number out on a podcast. <laughs> Remember that? Did stuck? you really? Oh my God,
2: yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, and, and s- someone didn't edit that out. Wow, mm. we <laughs> no. We <don't. laughs> Who needs editing? They, they're kind of loose with the editing. <laughs> sure. Timmy's
0: going to be crazy enough to throw that out there. That's a sphere
3: I mean, we have a a small audience. Now, you know, think about the exposure that she would have had on a, I mean, even today. I mean, back then you had three networks, maybe four, Mm -hmm. right? No, really not a lot of cable television going on.
0: I think it would have been right about the advent of cable, right around then, about 80...
3: Yeah, but still. You would know the weekly schedule, TV schedule, almost every evening you would know what... I mean, you knew, just knew what shows were on at what what time. So there wasn't... You didn't have these, you know, 400 channels or whatever you have today. And, you know... The exposure that one of those network shows would receive, mm-hmm. uh, even now, but especially back then, you know, it had to be it had to be off the off the chain how many people would watch those shows,
1: especially with where the show was initially.
0: Yeah, and honestly, I'd never I've never seen the show. No, nope. um, I, I did hear. A, I did always find an interesting comment. Um, you know I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan and he was on Storytellers and a, and a guy in the audience asked him he said you know from your music I followed you for so long and I really feel like I know you you know how much do I know you and, and Bruce was answering questions and he said not at all he said you don't know me at all he said what well, you see we all have faces and you see my performing face and mm-hmm. that's the face I right. have on all the time it, it, it it's a weird thing It's a very weird thing.
2: Yeah,
3: such a sad, uh, sad story. I had a friend who um, she had uh, went out to Los Angeles on vacation, and they, I believe, they um, performed that show in front of a live audience, Uh, and she went, she went to see it. Um, I don't know how long that was before it ended, or how long it, how long it had, you know, before. She was murdered, but um I do remember her going to it because she was at that point. Pam Darver was she was a star, right? She was yeah. You know she had been on Mork and Mindy. Yeah, and she had she helped to de- yeah, to develop
2: the that. show. Um I mean, it was it was really kind of put on her and one of the producers to find the Patty character who Rebecca Schaefer played. Um In an interview, you know Pam had said we just searched and searched and searched, and then you know when. When Rebecca came in, she, you know, she said, we knew immediately from like two minutes of talking that that was her. So yeah, she was a, she was a star and, and CBS wanted to put a show around Pam Dauber because they saw what she had done at Morgan Mending. they really wanted this to kind of like be her starring role vehicle show, right? Like this was featuring yeah. Pam Dauber thing. So,
3: right. She was more of a co-star in, in More right. in and Yeah. uh, Right. Yeah.
1: Where I lived in Michigan was in the 80s was right by Somerset Mall, which is like the big fancy mall for the Detroit area. And Pam Dauber was a regular at the Saks Fifth Avenue there. And she was reputed to be the kindest, nicest, friendliest person. She would take pictures. She would sign autographs. And I think it really says something that she was acting like that even after what happened to Rebecca Schaefer.
3: Wow. Yeah. Is she she from... Michigan,
1: no, but her husband Mark Harmon Mark
2: Harman, yeah.
1: has some has some background here.
2: And okay. another thing too, kind of kind of talking about just how how great uh, Pam Dauber is. Um, when they were filming My Sister Sam, Rebecca moved in with Pam and Mark, who weren't married yet, but you know they they were together um, and moved in with her uh, to you know, to give her a place to live and they, you know, they kind of became their own little family, you know, because they, they lived together and work together. So yeah, no, Pam Dauber was, was an amazing, was an amazing person, um, to, to help her out like that in, in the beginning. But that, that is, I, I don't know if I would be that close to a tragedy like that, if I'd want to be around people. So that, that says a lot about her. Yeah. I mean, hell, I don't want to be around people now, period. But especially after something no. like that, <laughs> that's, you know, you, you would think you would really uh, take pause. Definitely. Yeah. Yes, it does. And you,
0: even if you live a good life, you can't prevent that. And sometimes just, sometimes you have to worry about the people in your own house. <laughs>
1: Just, you
3: do. I
0: have Logan taste my food for me, so yeah, I do. Yeah. You have
3: Logan taste your food.
0: <laughs> Generally, yeah. <laughs> Generally. Does that include the Oreos?
1: Well, yeah. If he gets any,
0: <laughs> I, everything. We appreciate you listening to Dark Archive. This is our first episode, and we will be back with more. So please stay tuned.